Hi, I'm Tebble, and this is the podcast for Centerpoint Church, located in Hendersonville, Tennessee. We are on a series called Jesus and the Nazis. In this series, we will take a look at the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer to see how God can work even in the middle of evil empires. Let's jump into week four of Jesus and the Nazis. If it's your first time here, you've picked a very unusual time to be your first time. I'm glad you're here. But we're in a very uh, non-traditional series in which we are looking at the life of a man called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And we're looking at World War II and what this has to do with you and I in today's day and age. And this is week four. So I think you're still going to get something out of today, but I want to remind you that this is designed to be taken as a whole, a four-parter. And today we're wrapping this up. So let me catch you up to speed in case it's your first time, first time in a while, or you just have terrible memory of where we are so far. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we have a picture of him up on the screen, is a theologian. He has his doctorate in theology. He is a pastor. He is a reverend. And he is alive in the German Christian church during World War II. So during the rise of Adolf Hitler in Nazi Germany, and what he comes to the conclusion of is the church cannot sit by idly as we watch all of the atrocities happen that is the Nazi party. And he was astonished that German Christians weren't doing anything about it. They were just sitting there silent week after week. As all of these things were happening, and in week one, we talked about the cost of following Jesus. That as culture shifts away from the things of the Lord, make no mistake, there will be a cost to radically following Jesus. And in week two, we looked at how Hitler slowly influenced the church. They called it the Nazification of the church. It, was, it came subtly through the pulpit. They stopped teaching about Jewish history. Then they got a little more audacious as they stopped allowing Jews to become baptized. And then swastikas started showing up as decor in the churches all the way to the swastika made its way to the altar. And and so we talked about that. Last week we talked about cheap grace versus costly grace. One of the premier things that Dietrich Bonhoeffer taught is that we can cheapen grace by not doing anything once God has forgiven us and just coasting until we hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And, and this week, what I want us to talk about, in case you're, you're a note taker and you're like, what's the sermon title? I've got to have a sermon title. If there's not a sermon title, we're I, I've given it the title of Train Track Church. That won't make any sense till the very end of, of our time today. Train Track Church. So note takers, you have a title, all right? Don't get mad at me now. And, and, and basically what I want us to do is I want us to look at the ending of the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So we're going to talk about leaving a legacy. We're going to talk about how he died, what he was involved in with Project Valkyrie and the assassination of Hitler, and what that has to do with you and I. Look at this quote of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, of what he thought of the German Christian church should do. He said, we are not simply to bandage the wounds of the victims beneath the wheels of injustice, but we are to drive a spoke in the wheel itself. In case you're wondering, this is the, where D. Snyder wrote, we're not going to take it. It was based upon this quote. That's not true at all. Some of you have no idea who D. Snyder is, uh, and that's okay. It's a band called Twisted Sister, and, and if you know who that is, uh, I'll pray for you. Uh, <laughs> that's a joke, by the way, but that quote is not. 
And, and, and what he saw is, is that too many people in the church went around and they just took care of the people who were constantly getting wounded, and nobody had the courage to stand up and actually stop the thing that was wounding everybody. And again, the Christian church sat silent. Now, where we left off was 1941. Dietrich Bonhoeffer gets banned from writing anything, publishing anything, or speaking out in public. And so what he does is for the next two years, he shifts to underground, and he goes to the different confessing churches, and, and he encourages the pastor, he trains men and women, he equips them, but it all has to be underground because he is on Adolf Hitler's radar. And during that time, something amazing happens, arguably the happiest thing of his life. On January 13th, 1943, to Maria von Wiedemeyer Weller, he gets engaged. In case you're curious what she looks like, not a whole lot of pictures of her available, uh, but he gets engaged. Now, that's exciting. Less than three months later, he's going to get arrested. They never actually end up getting married, uh, and he has less than three months of holding her hand and giving her pet names and all those disgusting things that you people do when you're in love and engaged. And I did those things too, but it's still disgusting. <laughs> and you're like, wow, that was really sad. And then you put a joke at a very inappropriate time. It's just a defense mechanism, all right? Don't judge me, okay? <laughs> he gets engaged to Maria, and that engagement is only going to last three months. So when we hear Dietrich Bonhoeffer say things like that it should cost you to follow Jesus, he's not just saying this from a crystal cathedral. He's saying this because it cost him everything. He gets arrested at his parents' house, which is a terrible spot to get arrested because then you can't hide it from your parents. April 5th, 1943, he's arrested by the Gestapo. He's arrested, in case you care, for conspiracy of getting Jews out of the country. It's not really much of a conspiracy. He did do it. And basically what he did is forge documents, and he would usher Jews out of the country in which they had to either work for the government or buy arms for the government or do different things. He would forge the documents, and then they would never come back. And it was really his way of underground, of ushering Jews out before they could be sent to the concentration camps. He gets discovered. He gets arrested. He gets thrown in a prison in Berlin for two years without a trial which, by the way, is illegal. But the Gestapo doesn't care what's illegal. And Hitler was just waiting for his chance to throw Dietrich Bonhoeffer in jail. And, and while Bonhoeffer was in jail, he doesn't handle it the way that some of us would. Some of us, if something happened bad to us and we didn't deserve it, would want everybody to know. This isn't fair. I didn't even do anything. I'm not even supposed to be here. And we would complain and complain and complain. Not you, but some of us, all right? But that's not what he did. What he did is he took every opportunity to pour into people. And even while he was in prison, and eventually he would be sent over to the concentration camp filled with the very Jews that he was trying to save, he used that opportunity to teach them, to encourage them, to pour into them. You see, at often, oftentimes, you and I, at times of adversity, we just focus inward and not Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He said, God put me here for a purpose, and the purpose is to pour value and to pour hope into people that have no hope. And what I want to do is, is I want to show you a portion of Scripture. It's a pretty big chunk recorded in Matthew. It's, it's the words of Jesus that Dietrich Bonhoeffer really, really taught 
And what he really made an emphasis of when he was teaching in these concentration camps to the Jews that were surrounded by him, or surrounded him, uh, because you can see how important it is to the Jews, but then also why it is important to you and I today. And just, I'm throwing this out there, this is a very unpopular teaching in today's church. It's the words of Jesus, and it is very unpopular because when we hear these things, we're forced to make a decision. We feel a lot more comfortable with the sermons that are just on salvation. And that's the starting point. That's what's paramount. But at some point in time, after you get saved, you got to start hearing messages on sanctification and on growing and spiritual maturity and development. And these are the words of Jesus. And the basic premise is this, before we jump in, Matthew 10, by the way, for you five people that have a Bible, Matthew 10, is the idea is, is that we as men and women are controlled by fear. We're afraid. Now hold on a second, before your bravado kicks in and you're like, I'm not afraid of nothing, Jason. You are. Some of you are afraid that your bank account might be zero because you don't genuinely believe that God is the one that supplies all of your needs. You, you might be afraid that, <laughs> I see this in men all the time, is this fear of, I can't raise my hands during worship. So what's everyone else going to think of me? So, sometimes I've had people come up to me and say, man, I, I, I felt like I to just run up to that altar in the middle of that worship and just cry out to God, but I didn't. I talked myself out of it. Why? So what's everyone going to think? We're controlled by fear. And what Dietrich Bonhoeffer is saying is we either fear man or we fear God. But you can't fear both. So the words of Jesus, words in red, Matthew 10, we'll start off in verse 26. Imagine what this would mean to the people who are sitting in the concentration camp. So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in... What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roof. Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of my Father's care. And even the very hairs on your head are numbered. For do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Imagine what that meant to the people who were completely hopeless. What he's saying is, I know what you're going through is tough, but God is here with us. And he knows. And his eye is on you. Verse 32. Now we start going to the very unpopular teaching. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read stuff like that, there's some things, for those of you that grew up listening to 80s hip-hop, things that make you go, Hmm. And, and when I hear that, I think, what, it, what does he mean? She said he didn't come to bring peace. But everything I've ever heard of about Jesus is that he is peace. And he is. But why in Isaiah and then two times in the Gospels do we hear him called the Prince of Peace? Because those seem conflicting, right? Just me? Jesus did come to bring peace. 
But the peace that he brought was between man and God. We can be reconciled now with God because of what he did on the cross. That's where the peace comes from. But Jesus said, but here, between man and man, I did not come to bring peace. I came to bring the sword. And what he's saying right here is the message of Jesus is going to naturally divide people. It's what it is. The Word of God is a divider. And Jesus didn't shy away from that. You want to go look at somebody who came into this world and disrupted everything? It's Jesus. So as I'm reading this, I'm thinking to myself, if we have followed a Jesus that has never divided us from anybody or anything, are we following the biblical Jesus or are we following a Jesus that we've made in our own image of what God should be? If you you follow Christ and it's never cost you anything, are you actually following Christ? If it's never cost you something in business, where if you just had these few little shortcuts and these few little things, but you decided to stand up and do the right thing and it cost you a little bit of money or a business deal, if you've never come come face to face with that, are you following Jesus? If, If culture... And everything going on in culture right now in today's society goes perfectly with what your theology is. You're not following Jesus because the Word of God divides. It will cost us. But we're afraid. So what if? What if? And Jesus even doubles down on this division that his message will cost. Look at this, the cause. Verse 35, for I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and man's enemies will be members of his own household. Now, can you imagine for a moment, I find this stuff funny, so just indulge me for a minute. Can you imagine if we taught all of this stuff in vacation Bible school? Like if you went to vacation Bible school and they had that little flannel board, you know, with the little, little cutouts of Jesus, and, and, we, and he put that on there, and he's like, and here's Jesus. And he came to bring a sword and divide us from all of mankind. And he's going to turn man against his own son. All right, come back tomorrow for uh, goldfish and apple juice. We'll see you tomorrow. Like, it's just funny. And also, by the way, didn't even say this first service. It's really funny to me, totally side note, that we put so much emphasis on Noah's Ark for kids. Like, you understand that's a story of God judging earth and killing everybody. Like, you know, let's decorate our nursery in Noah's Ark. That'll be great. You people are messed up. Verse 39, you distracted me. Shame on you. But this part's important. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. What Jesus is trying to say is you're grasping, like you're clutching so hard these things that you're trying to hold on to, and what you don't realize is it's the very thing that is, uh, that is holding you back from unlocking the Zoe life, the abundant life, the real life. You think you need it, but what you're holding on to is really holding you back. Look at this other quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. The call of Christ sets up a barrier between man and his natural life. Make no mistake. 
When you start following Jesus, there will be a barrier that will now start to grow with the things that you used to care about that don't mean as much anymore. I can tell you this. All the 401K in the world won't mean anything if you get one call and they're starting to talk about stage four and terminal. You really start to realize who actually is in control. All of the... The, the comforts of the world don't mean anything when your marriage is about to end. It's when you go through these difficult times that you really start to realize that God is all you need and what we're really in control of. But too many people are held back by fear. July 20th, 1944 is when Project Valkyrie is initiated. Now, at this point, Dietrich's already been in jail for a while, but before he got put in jail, he was, uh, he was a part of this very sophisticated plan called Operation Valkyrie in which they would overthrow the Nazi party and take the, the country back. And it was a lot more complicated than just the assassination of Hitler, though that was the initial part. Like as soon as that would happen, that would initiate Project Valkyrie. And Hitler was a great leader. Terrible person, clearly, but a great leader. And what Hitler did is he set up this very sophisticated strategy of checks and balances where if this happened, he had this fail-safe in place. And if this happened, then he would have this fail-safe in place. And so it wasn't as easy as just killing Hitler. You had, to, you had to have this entire plan to take over the government. And by the way, they also wanted to, to set up a way where they would get away with it because you don't want your wife and kids to also die. And they would. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer is actually a part of this before he gets jailed. And on this day, Project Valkyrie is initiated. Now, they take a, a suitcase, and there's supposed to be two bombs in it, and the bomb is going to detonate and hopefully blow up Hitler. That's the plan in a perfect world. But everybody started wimping out at the last minute because Hitler was amazing at making people fear as if they're the only one. Satan does the same thing with us. He makes you think you're the only one going through what you're going through. He makes you think that when you're not in the room, everybody's talking about you. He makes you think you're not good enough. And when you act this way, as soon as you leave, they all know. And it was the same way with Adolf Hitler. So nobody wanted to actually step up and have leadership in Project Valkyrie because they were fearful. They were the only one. And as soon as they said something, they would be like, gotcha. Now you die and everybody else. And so as this was being initiated, like, it, it was really tough to pull off because people kept bailing left and right. But finally on this day, that suitcase does blow up. We have a picture of what the room looked like. Believe it or not, Hitler is going to survive this with really few injuries. So that guy comes in with this briefcase, and in a perfect world, he would have said it right next to Hitler. But imagine just for a moment, and Hitler's already a paranoid guy enough. Imagine for a moment if you walked in and you're like, mm -hmm -hmm, just here for a meeting. I'm going to set this down right next to your legs, Adolf. Okay, we good? All right. And I'm going to go sit in my chair while my suitcase, my briefcase is right here by you. But I'm going to get sit over here and like that that's going to look totally normal, right? So instead, he had to place it a little bit further away and try to angle it. You see this big giant table right here? That table is actually what messed everything up. 
It's one, the guy didn't detonate two bombs because he wimped out at the last minute. So it's half as powerful as it's supposed to be. But then the other one is, is that on the side of this table over here was a big thick leg, wooden leg. And when that thing blew up, it hit that big thick leg and it changed the trajectory of most of the explosion. Where really, Adolf Hitler, he had his pants shredded, which is kind of funny because now he's sitting there pantless. I'm sure he didn't take that well. Uh, a burst eardrum and just some surface level wounds. And that's really it. And so at that moment, Project Valkyrie is initiated. And because he didn't die in the explosion, they were so shook that they really slowed down on initiating the rest of the project. And because of their delay, it failed. And now Adolf Hitler, after he recovers and knows what's going on, he doesn't take it too well. And, and he proceeds to find every single person that was involved and starts killing them and their family. Now, when it comes out that Adolf, that, um, that Dietrich Bonhoeffer was involved in Operation Valkyrie, he's already sitting in jail. He's now doomed. There's no way he's getting out. He's going to die. Everyone else has died. And so as soon as he hears that that failed, he knows we're done here. My time is short. Dietrich Bonhoeffer actually wrestled a lot with this idea of should a man of God be involved in killing Adolf Hitler and murdering another human? And, and this is probably the most controversial spot of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life. And I'm not here to tell you one way or the other, but I can tell you how Dietrich Bonhoeffer justified being a man of God and a pastor and a reverend, but also being involved in an assassination plot. Is He ultimately believed that someone had to stand up and defend the innocent. He believed at all costs, somebody must stand up to defend people who are completely innocent. Now, biblically, he shifted it towards that we have lots and lots of things that we have documentation that David repented of, King David, but he never repented for killing Goliath. And so that's how he justified being a part of it, but it was not an easy decision for him. So, April 9th, 1945, in the concentration camp of, Fla of Flossenburg, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is hung. Not exactly a glamorous location to go out. Uh, one of the last things, um, some people say it was the last executive order that Adolf Hitler ever put out, we don't know that for sure, was the execution of Dietrich Bonhoeffer because Adolf had wanted to get rid of him for a long time. So he's hung here. Tragically enough, 40-ish hours after his execution, that camp is liberated, it's freed. Less than two weeks later, Adolf Hitler commits suicide. Less than three weeks after this, the war's over. He's hung here. And either right before or right after, we don't know which one, his brother Klaus is also hung. And his two brother-in-laws are also murdered as well. And so what I've been asking myself as we've been talking about the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer is he lived just 30 short years, early 30s, yet he made an impact. And I've been thinking about, like, what do I want for my life? What do I want for your life? 
And is this a tragedy that Dietrich died young? Is it a tragedy that he never got to experience marriage, procreation, a long life, a comfortable life? And then I just kind of started thinking, what do I want with my life? Because we're all going to be remembered for something, just the same as you remember people in your family. Some of them have had good impacts on you. Some of them have had terrible impacts on you. Some people in our family tree have been courageous, and some were cowards. And what will society think of us? I want you to hear this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer from A Cost of Discipleship, the book that we've referenced a lot. He said this, they must not fear men, when he's talking about the church. Men can do them no harm, for the power of men ceases with death of the body. But they must overcome fear of death of the body, but they must overcome fear of death with the fear of God. The danger lies not in the judgment of men, but in the judgment of God. Not in the death of the body, but in internal destruction of the body and soul. Those who are still afraid of men have no fear of God. And those who have fear of God have ceased to be afraid of men. The time is short, and eternity is long. Make no mistake, church, that history will look back at this generation of Christians right here, right now, and how will they remember us? If things don't change, I'm afraid they're going to remember us as convenient Christianity, following Jesus when it's convenient, attending church when it's convenient, making decisions for God when it doesn't cost us anything, and being as less bought in as we can, but still get to heaven. But the flip side of that is, is that you and I have a very unique opportunity at a time where rapidly culture is shifting away from the things of God. You and I have a chance to make a difference, unlike any generation before us. But it takes courage. In the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you can either fear God or you can fear man, but you cannot fear both. As I was thinking about how I wanted to wrap up this series, and what, what was the pretty little bow that I would want to put on the end of this to kind of really, like, it's been a heavy couple of weeks. Again, if it's your first time, you're either going to love this or hate it, but again, I can either preach what I think that like, God wants me to do or I can preach what I think man wants me to hear. And I can't do both. And, and so what would I want with the ending of this series? And I ran across it. There's a gentleman who's associated with Moody Bible Institute uh, named Dr. Erwin Lutzer. And he wrote a book called When a Nation Forgets God. When a Nation Forgets God. And he told a story about a train track church. Remember when I talked about that at the very beginning? I told you it'd make sense. Now it's about to make sense. And he told this story, and it, I mean, it, it shook me when I was reading it. So much so that I'm reading this book, and I read this portion that I'm about to share with you, and I literally started crying. 
Now that's a little weird in its own because I'm a borderline sociopath, but I was in the middle of Panera. So if you see me at Panera and I'm crying, just leave me alone, let me have a moment. I'm fine, everything's fine, it's gonna be fine. But man, this moved me. And I think it will move you as well if you allow God to speak to you through it. Don't check out on me yet, we're almost done. What Dr. Lutzer said in his book, she said that countries deteriorate not from government leadership down, but from households up. And what starts in the home is supposed to then pour over and spill over into the community and the local church and the city and the state and the nation. So why is culture headed in the wrong direction? Most people would say the country is headed in the wrong direction. It's not a Democrat or Republican thing, please. It started in the home. When a nation forgets God. This is an interview from a man who was part of the church in Germany. And he's interviewing him about a church that they attended that was right next to a train track where they would haul Jews towards the concentration camp, a.k.a. the death camps. And I want you to hear this. Don't check out on me. This is powerful. This is the interview with that German Christian who's now deceased. I lived in Germany during the Nazi Holocaust. I considered myself a Christian. We heard stories of what was happening to the Jews, but we tried to distance ourselves from it because we could, what could we do to stop it? A railroad track ran behind our small church and each Sunday morning we would hear the whistle in the distance and the wheels coming over the tracks. We became disturbed when we heard the cries coming from the train as it passed by. We realized it was carrying Jews like cattle in the cars. Week after week, the whistle would blow. We dreaded hearing the sound of those wheels because we knew we would hear the cries of the Jews en route to the death camp. Their screams tormented us. We knew the train, the time the train was coming, and we would heard the, when we heard the whistle blow, we would simply sing hymns. By the time the train came past our church, we were singing at the top of our voices. If we heard the screams, we just sang louder until we heard them no more. Although years have passed, I still hear the train whistle in my sleep. God, forgive me. Forgive all of us who called ourselves Christians, yet we did nothing to intervene. We can't just sit in this room as cries are going out, as society is shifting, as culture is saying things that are okay, that are not okay, and just simply sing louder and ignore it and be fine with our happy little lives. God, forgive us for just sitting and singing hymns louder and doing nothing about it. Two more Dietrich Bonhoeffer quotes, and we're done with this series. The ultimate test of a moral society is the kind of world that it leaves to its children. 
Oh, you may be fine the rest of your life going the way that you are right now. Where I can't even tell the difference between you and your next door neighbor who's an atheist. And there's no different in your life. No different in your calendar. No different in your checkbook. No different in, in, in your Google calendar. No, you may be just fine with that. And you may still go along and still be used by God in some small ways. But what we compromise on becomes the next generation's truth. And as Peter says, we are living stones being built on the saints, building the kingdom of God. So my challenge to you, my challenge to me, and my challenge to us is let's not be satisfied with average Christians who just sing louder as people are crying out for help. But let's live different. Let's love different. Let's act different. Let's be generous with our time and with our love. And let's take a stand for the things that the Bible says when culture shifts away from it. Will you have the courage to do that? Men, will you have the courage to say that I will fear God more than I will fear man? And will your life matter? Will your life make a difference? Will your life make an impact? And will our kids and grandkids look back at us and say, I'm thankful that they took a stand when things were tough? Very last quote of our whole series. We've had this intermittently throughout all of it. It's my favorite Dietrich Bonhoeffer quote. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. You die to your flesh. You die to your desires. You die to the things that you want. And we follow Christ wholeheartedly. When Christ bids a man, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die.